If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Please be seated. Few dissidents have captured the world's attention in recent years like Alexander Navalny. The 47-year-old lawyer and activist who was a courageous critic and quite frankly, a very savvy uh, critic as well, who knew how to use social media and knew how to tell a story, who was a courageous critic of Russian President Val Vladimir Putin. Navalny, as we all know now, died in prison this week, almost certainly at the hands of the Russian state. He was jailed several years ago after near successful attempts on his life when he re returned to Russia. And he was jailed because his witness confirmed that something profoundly corrupt and dangerous had taken root in Russia in the person of Vladimir Putin. Now, I am not one uh, to make jokes about people like Vladimir Putin because I think he is one of, of several world leaders now who, who really are frightening and who we ought not humor, may, tell story, uh, make jokes about, uh, lest they begin to soften them. However, um, Navalny had a great sense of humor and frankly earned the right to say something satirical about Putin. And I want to share that, uh, just to share a little bit of his spark. After recovering from uh, when Russian agents poisoned him by putting a, a toxic nerve agent in his underwear, Navalny then, and this is from the Russian courtroom in 2021, while standing in the dock, he said this, he said, I have mortally offended Putin by surviving. He will enter history as a poisoner. We, the Russian people, have had Yaroslav the Wise and Alexander the Liberator. And now we will have Vladimir the Poisoner of Underpants. <laughs> that is courage. It's a pretty good line too, but it is absolutely fearless. It is courage. And you see, Navalny, had, he knew what was coming. It is courage to do what he did and to say that kind of thing right there in a Russian court. And yet he did it anyway. You see, Navalny, Alexander Navalny, had resigned himself to a kind of alternate reality in, in which he had already died. And get this, he had gotten over it. That's the way he tells the story. To his mind, he, it was all, his life was already forfeit. And though I'm sure he grieved and though I'm sure he felt real fear, he had still gotten over it and continued his witness, continued his mission. I don't know how one does that. I don't know if that comes from having had such a near-death experience. I don't know if that comes from, um, from, from looking the, uh, right directly in the face 
of the violence that the Russian state could and often did bring to bear. I don't know if that just comes from the, the Messiah complex that, that apparently is really a part of, of the Russian psyche. That, that's really a thing. Navalny wrote about that. But Navalny was also a Christian, not by culture, but by choice. Now, I'm not going to say he led with that. I'm not going to say he talked about his own spirituality. He, but he had been a fierce atheist. But along the way, something had changed in him. His newfound faith, he said, it gave him a kind of moral clarity that no doubt empowered his own witness and his own life. Now, I want to put um, this grand story in the background for just a moment because what I really want to talk about this morning uh, is something called family systems theory, which if you are a therapist or if you are a priest, you're going to, I see some of whom laughing at me, know a little bit about what this is. It is a way of understanding how human beings form relationships and how in the midst of those relationships, we, we deal with hardship and change uh, and all the things that life is going to send us. Now, now, family systems theory really applies to everybody. Wherever they're talking about families of origin, uh, uh, to communities that we live in, to congregations, uh, to cities, and, and even nations. So we can really talk about all of that. Um, and one of the core teachings of family systems theory is this thing called homeostasis. Homeostasis, which is the state of being in which we, because we are human beings, in which we gravitate towards keeping things the same. Especially when we are, are fearful or anxious, we're gonna do whatever we can um, to try to keep things the way that we are because we tend to fear the costs of what change might bring. Now, um, Putin and Navalny are, are really extreme examples, uh, but they do make the point. The tyrant, clearly wants things to stay the same because it benefits him, it enriches him, everything's working well for him, and he's going to use all of his power to eliminate the thing or the person that threatens the status quo. But this thing, family systems theory and homeostasis, it really has far more to do with us, with each and every one of us and the families and the communities that we are a part of. Because it tells us that the more um, disrupted we feel, the more fearful and anxious we are, the more unsettled we are in our spirits and our well-being, the more we are going to resist the ones who want choose a different way. And by the way, uh, because we are human beings, we never do this right directly to their face. We never go up to someone and say, I feel like you are bringing change and I would like to resist that, right? We, we don't do that. Instead, what we do uh, is we sabotage and we slow walk and we obfuscate and we do whatever we need to do so that that person bringing the change either falls into line or, or gets ejected. 
We, we've all been every person in this situation. I know. We've all been the one bringing the change, and we've all been the one who at some level is resisting it. And woe to that person if they actually talk about the cost of continuing in the way things are. I mean, when was the last time we elected a politician who, who stood up and told us that we really cannot afford a military state or the national debt or the corporate, or corporate welfare or a flawless safety net or any of those things that we all feel like we need? Many of those are, you know, we do need to take care of our neighbor. We do need to look out for one another, but, but that's not, you know, politician, I think the art of politics is telling people what they want to hear and, and hope that it works out for the best. But when folks actually tell us the truth, the thing that we don't want to hear, we get upset. We get upset. And I think that is how I hear Peter's bizarre outburst in the gospel today. We, it just, it's like Peter and Jesus, it's like they're reading from a different script. I mean, G, Peter, Jesus says this thing that's hard, and Peter rebukes him, kind of weird, uh, and Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Peter's probably like, who, who are you talking to? What, what? Jesus totally shocks him. Because up till now, remember, this is the Gospel of Mark, the very first Gospel. And up till now, I think this, this adventure was largely about miracle and healing, right? It was like the best spiritual practices ever. Uh, and we were just stringing one win after another. Who doesn't love that? But then, but then Jesus shocks him by then saying that this journey is going to lead to his death. This journey is going to lead to suffering and to great loss. And so Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus kind of, to me, uh, goes overboard a little bit when he looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. But I think Peter's upset here. Um, that's a word that we used a lot when the kids were younger, but I think we as adults know it too. Upset is that state of being in your feeling guts that, that you just, you get so overwhelmed that you just say what's on your mind, whether or not you should have, and it's like, bleh, upset. It just kind of comes out. That's what Peter does. His anxiety rushes to the surface. Because his fantasies about this wonderful spiritual life that, that is going to be relatively cost-free come to a dramatic halt. Jesus has now said something that threatens that homeostasis of familiarity that Peter and, frankly, all of us want to cling to like a raft in a storm. Jesus knew what Peter did not yet realize, that this movement was heading in a different direction, deeper into the real world, deeper into the world where, where folk hunger 
for something greater, and yet farther away from any illusions of safety. And that meant going towards places of suffering and pain. So this is the moment here in the gospel, here in the very first gospel, that we hear the very first mention of the cross. Imagine that. You're following this amazing dude uh, who has, who's healing people and teaching you things that make you feel good. Uh, and all of a sudden, everything is just fine. Then all of a sudden, he talks about a cross, which has a very real meaning in that culture. I'll get to that in just a moment. Imagine what that must feel like. Um, Andrew McGowan, he was the dean of my, my seminary, writes a wonderful weekly blog. Um, he says, call this what you will. Call it a crossroads. Call it a crux. Call it a hinge. This is the moment when the gospel turns. I would call it um, an inflection point. A moment when the cost of this life is made visible, but also because of that, the moment when real growth suddenly becomes possible. And that why may be why in this moment Jesus does the very perplexing thing of speaking not to Peter. I mean, he's looking in Peter's direction, but, but he's actually speaking to a spirit, to a spirit of evil. A spirit who does its very best work when luring us, always, always whispering sweet nothings into our ear, um, luring us back to our familiar, comfortable homeostasis, the status quo. But Jesus speaks directly to the spirit, you, Again, looking at Peter, but talking to the Spirit, you, you do not have the floor right now. This is the moment, this is the moment of inflection when I invite my disciples to turn with me towards Jerusalem, towards hardship, towards suffering, towards a difficult path, but one that actually brings new life into the world towards the cross. Now, the cross, you may be thinking, uh, uh, this means that Jesus is, is predicting his own death. Well, maybe he was, but that's not what he says. He actually says, in this first mention of the cross, take, if you, anyone want to follow me, they will lay down their lives. They will take up their cross and, and follow me. And when, by doing that, he is talking about a very specific kind of cost. Now, you, you probably heard the phrase, that is my cross to bear. Ever heard this one right? That person, that thing is my cross to bear. I come from the passive aggressive South. I know exactly what that really means. <laughs> Oh, that person, oh, is my cross to bear, right? Well, I, okay, maybe it's an acknowledgement that burdens are a part of life and of love sometimes. Uh, and sometimes, right, in a less healthy way, it's like we claim a little bit of a martyr status, you know, shading a little bit who we don't care much for. Well, yeah, okay, that's human being thinking through things, but, but we should be careful there. 
because what McGowan writes about this week is that this was not some vague sense of burden. This was not, well, we're just going to deal with some suffering and some loss, and that way we're sharing in what Jesus is doing. This cross, he said, was a specific reference to politically driven violence and oppression. The cross was the principal means of execution for the underclass. It was a means, a weapon for keeping the underclass in line and subservient to the empire. It was not a religious symbol, not an awkward and nebulous burden, but rather a symbol of violence that an oppressing force uses to control. Something that we have seen in the news just this week. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, I call this an inflection point. And, and that's kind of a trendy word, you know, lots of graphs talking about things going in a certain direction. Um, so we think of inflection points as moments, it's where two axes meet, when the line that is headed east in, on, along the x-axis, uh, x yes, I know I'm pointing west, but bear with me here, that the thing that is going x is, is suddenly makes a dramatic turn upward towards more of whatever it is is on that y-axis. So whether we're talking about money or subscribers or job growth or carbon production, right, whatever it is, the inflection point means it's more. But you know, uh, this is an inflection point, but not one that leaps up to the top, but rather one that goes in a very different direction, one that turns downward one that redirects towards disruption and uncertainty and even death. No wonder Peter got really upset. But that turn is towards something real, something that is abundantly filled with the presence of God. It was a movement away from what we might call the theology of glory, right? Getting saved and getting status. Maybe a little bit of prosperity gospel along the way. And instead towards the cross, where the fullness of life comes when we pour ourselves out for others. It was a moment of inflection. But it was not that way because Jesus' message was finally beginning to reach enough early adopters. It was an inflection point in the gospel because it was the very first time that Jesus invited his fellow travelers to join him in the act of dying, to share in his suffering to carry in their very bodies the pain of the world, not so that it would destroy them, but rather so that they could, through love, through grace, through dependence on the infinite love of God, 
take that suffering, take that pain, and transfigure it. This, this is the great insight of the Christian faith. That as we move towards the suffering of the world, as we listen and respond to the hungers of the world, as we go not away from discomfort but towards it, as we run not for our lives but towards the lives of others, we carry the holy burden of the cross. And when we do that, suffering itself turns into the raw material of love. It's just amazing. This is what sacrifice looks like. Sacrifice comes in so many forms. If you are, it is Lent. If you have taken on a Lenten discipline and you're not doing something, that's a sacrifice. You're giving something up, so, and it's, it's a little death. I, I don't want to say that giving up potato chips is a living death, little death, but it kind of is. I mean, we've all been there. But it's, it is a little bit of, you're giving up a little bit of your comfortable human life so that a little bit more grace can come in and you can see things a little bit differently. But sacrifice can be far bigger than that. It's also those life choices that we make that mean for a long period of time, years, decades, or maybe even the rest of our lives, we are going to have less stuff, less things coming to us so that the rest of the world, those around us, our neighbors, can flourish. Suffering can also be a willingness to pour out our very lives so that we may find the greater life. Such sacrifice is saturated with love, self-giving love, world-changing love, victory over death love. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it.